it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, May 16th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here from the Tony Snow Radio Studios at the Fox News Bureau in our nation's capital. It is just an honor and a privilege to have you all along and on board between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every single weekday. If you can't listen as we air between those hours, we also have a podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. It is free of charge. It is on demand, and it is right there at your fingertips. You can also follow our work through social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's our handle on Twitter and Instagram alike, at Guy Benson Show. If you don't know me, I'm political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. And in that role, the latter role, I'll be on the panel tonight with Brett Bayer and friends for special report. Around 6.45 Eastern Time, Fox News Channel, that's this evening. Here on the radio, we will get to our first guest in just a moment. Katie Pavlich will also join us later on in the hour. I want to talk to Katie and then in our final hour, Andy McCarthy, about, among other things, the horrible shooting over the weekend in Buffalo from a deranged, hate-filled conspiracy theorist targeting black people and killing 10 individuals, predominantly black, in upstate New York. There's a blame game underway, which I hate and resent. The real story is the actual act of violence itself. What can or should be done about these things? What can be done, if anything, to prevent them? We will try to deal with some of those questions over the course of the program today. We will also welcome back Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas talking about some fiscal issues, inflation, the blame game from President Biden. There's a lot to get to here on a very busy show. And our first guest I was able to catch up with just moments ago. It's one of our colleagues here at Fox News who's been covering the war in Ukraine. Some major developments on that front in just the last 48 hours. Let's listen to this interview. Joining me now is Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent at Fox News. Jennifer, great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Guy. I want to start from a military perspective. I was reading reports all weekend of more significant setbacks for the Russian military in the northeastern region of Ukraine. And the U.K. military intelligence services are saying that they believe Russia may have lost up to one-third of their entire ground force over the course of this conflict and has currently, quote, lost momentum and fallen significantly behind schedule, not just in their failed attempt on Kiev, but now in the Donbass region as well. Talk about the significance of those developments, because it seems like the Russians are once again really in a pretty bad way here. 
Well, it's really interesting, Guy. That assessment from U.K. intelligence jives with what we are hearing from the Pentagon and from senior defense officials. And if you look at some of the developments in just the last 24 hours on the ground in Donbass, uh, you saw that video showing the attack by Ukrainian artillery onto a Russian battalion that was trying to cross the Donetsk River. And there was a pontoon bridge that was destroyed. And now we've learned that approximately 400 Russian soldiers, the equivalent of a Russian battalion, were killed in that strike by the Ukrainians. That's a huge setback for the Russians. And the fact that they are not able to control uh, crossing those uh, waterways, uh, that's going to be an issue for them. Uh, also, we know that in Kharkiv uh, that the Ukrainian forces now have shown videos of themselves. They've taken selfies. They're about, they pushed the Russians about two miles from the Russian border out of Kharkiv. Kharkiv, and that is a very significant development. Kharkiv is the second largest city in uh, in Ukraine, and for the Russians to have retreated from Kharkiv and pulled back to the border area, and for the Ukrainians to have pursued them back to that border, um, unbelievable uh, moves and, and tactics by the Ukrainian military. And we've also heard from the Pentagon that, uh, that about 75 of the 90 howitzer artillery batteries have been moved up to the front lines, and some of the, many of them have been used. So that is significant if those are uh, in the fight and, and uh, part of this, this turnaround. Now, there is still a disaster uh, further south in Mariupol, where the Russians have basically leveled that city, and they still have surrounded that Azovstal plant, where I saw a video this weekend that was so upsetting in terms of Ukrainian soldiers having to amputate their own limbs because they cannot be evacuated from that Azovstal plant. They cannot be, uh, uh, they're not getting, um, they're, they're not getting access to uh, doctors or surgeons, and they um, are facing infections from having been inside that plant for so long. So the situation in the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, absolutely dire. And so the Russian forces are still wreaking havoc in the south and have surrounded areas. Uh, there are people who are literally, uh, you know, starving in, in Mariupol. They need food. They need medical supplies. Uh, but what the, the advances by the Ukrainian military up in the north, no one, no one anticipated that. Um, and that the, the fact that they've pushed uh, Russia back from Kharkiv is very significant. And it's also a humiliation for the Russians who were expecting Kharkiv to be an easy city to overtake. It's right near their border. They thought they'd have control of the whole country by now. I don't think they would have ever anticipated not even holding Kharkiv at this stage. And that is a testament, of course, to the Ukrainians and their ferocity and their commitment to this. Also to the West that has been supporting them. Jennifer, how much have you been hearing about maybe the discussion internally about U.S. intelligence? Obviously, our intelligence and Western intelligence has helped the Ukrainians immensely to the point that there was really some kind of boasting and bragging recently, saying, oh, we've helped them target some of their generals. Some people have said, okay, that might be nice. Do we need to say that out loud? Does that risk well, pulling the U.S. into a more direct confrontation with the Russians? What do you make of that? Well, Guy, you make some valid points and you raise some valid points. What I would say from my um, my perspective and uh, based on the, the uh, briefings that I receive, 
I think those reports are irresponsible. I think that uh, this is a situation I can't imagine a time where uh, reporters who maybe were embedded on D-Day would have given away uh, what kind of intelligence uh, the, the U.S. and U.K. forces had at that time. I, I think some of the statements and some of the news reports are uh, perhaps a bit overblown. They're pretty thinly sourced. Uh, but even what we do know is that the U.S. and U.K., have uh, supplied as much intelligence as they can to the Ukrainians. But frankly, the Ukrainians have better intelligence on the ground. Uh, they are on the ground. The U.S. and U.K. are not. So it also is a bit uh, a bit much to suggest that the Ukrainians aren't, uh, aren't really carrying out most of these attacks. They may be getting some assistance. Uh, we know of the military aid that's, that's being um, sent into Ukraine. That's significant. And we do know that intelligence is being shared. But the reports and the specificity of the reports, I, I think it's not helpful at this time. And I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's perhaps a bit misleading. And also, uh, really, I think everyone needs to it, – it, it's – I think there needs to be a little more caution before those kind of reports are, are, are published. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the Ukrainians are the ones executing on these pieces of intelligence, and they've been doing so with great effect, which is something that I think is terrific, but your points are well taken. On the diplomatic side of things, Jennifer, for Americans who don't necessarily follow European politics or NATO politics particularly closely, it may not seem like that big of a thing that Finland and Sweden are now going to seek entrance into the NATO alliance, but that is really a seismic development, is it not? Explain the significance of that. Absolutely seismic and historic. Think about it. Sweden has been neutral since the Napoleonic Wars. It's more than 200 years. Finland has been neutral since the end of World War II. Uh, this is this is a uh, this was unthinkable months ago. In fact, it, polls inside Finland showed that only 20 percent of the Finns supported joining NATO prior to Russia's invasion on February 24th. After the invasion, that rose to 80 percent of Finnish support. The public sentiment in Finland and Sweden, the fear and the the belief that unless they are a part of NATO, that it they are not safe from Russia's and Putin's expansionist uh, vision. And what is notable to me, so you have the Swedish parliament having debated this today. The Finnish president called Vladimir Putin on Saturday to tell him that his nation was going to be applying uh, for fast-track membership into NATO. And what is surprising is Putin's muted response. So while you hear some of his underlings talking about moving nuclear weapons to the Finnish border and the same old kind of nuclear uh, threat, uh, which has become kind of empty hyperbole at this point, uh, Putin's actual response in the phone call with the Finnish president was calm. It was deliberate. It was not full of threats or military threats. And today we heard public statements from Putin as he met with six other former Soviet uh, states uh, in Moscow, he stated that that he was not opposed to Finland and Sweden joining as long as NATO did not set up bases or send troops to permanently be based in those countries, and there would not be a problem. 
So that is a very different Vladimir Putin than what we would have expected and what we would have heard even a few months ago. And all of it is a sign of how poorly his military is doing on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, he had to pull Russian forces back from the Finnish border uh, in order to uh, to uh, provide more uh, more deployed troops to Ukraine because he's had so many losses. As you said, the U.K. intelligence is that he's lost a third of his forces inside Ukraine. Now, Russia is still a big country, and they have not uh, they have not pursued a full call up of their um, uh, of their reserves. But uh, but so they still have many many more soldiers. It's not as though they're out of sure. Soldiers. No, of, of course. But, they but are, to have but they and to have now potentially stretched. additional NATO countries right on their border. It's like the exact opposite of what the Putin wanted. This opposite. feels like a, a total strategic disaster for Putin. Setting aside the military disaster that this, this has been so far for the Russians. Lastly, Jennifer, on the political side of things. Senator Mitch McConnell and a delegation of Republican senators, four of them total, went to Kiev in a surprise visit over the weekend. I was delighted to see that. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on the other side of the aisle recently did the same thing. The First Lady, two cabinet secretaries from the Biden administration. This seems to be one of the only areas where there is bipartisan agreement and strong agreement in Washington, D.C. Based on your time in Ukraine and your discussions with officials there, how important are these types of shows of solidarity to them, setting aside the more important, I would say, military aid and all of that type of support plus intelligence? Uh, this is more kind of information warfare to a certain extent and, and propaganda, yes, uh, even though it's propaganda that I support. Does it help the morale inside the country to see this kind of thing from American leaders? I think it's hugely important um, in terms of morale, and based on the conversations I had when I was in Kiev with the Ukrainian uh, officials and, and ministers in the government, it's very important. But what's even more important is that uh, when when uh, U.S. delegations go, they should be bipartisan delegations. Why are Republicans and Democrats going separately? They should be going together. And frankly, they should be back in Washington passing the $40 billion supplemental because that is what is going to allow the Pentagon to keep sending weapons in, and humanitarian and the State Department to send humanitarian aid into Ukraine. So all of those delegations are good if they come back and then double down and work together to figure out what aid needs to get into Ukraine to make sure that this war is shortened, because from my information from uh, when I was in Ukraine, this summer is going to be absolutely crucial in terms of turning the tides against the Russian forces. It is important that uh, the Ukrainians win in the next few months uh, in order for this not to become some sort of ossified forever war that the U.S. will then spend in many more than $40 billion to try and support and prevent Russia from taking over Ukraine. I think it is more significant than the visits to uh, to Kiev is the fact that the U.S. and 30 other countries have reopened their embassies there. That is a mm -hmm. sign uh, that uh, that the West is not forgetting Ukraine, that they are not, that they don't think that Russia is going to come back and take uh, Kiev. And if they do, they will have 30 nations uh, sitting there that they'll have to contend with their their diplomats. And so that is really providing a protection, I think, to President Zelensky and his government. And so opening those embassies and getting that aid uh, passed on, in Congress and flowing, um, that is what they they should be doing. The the symbol symbol of the visits very important um, from a morale standpoint, but they also need food, weapons, and uh, help on the front lines. 
Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent at Fox News. Jennifer, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. We will step aside. We'll be right back. It is the Guy Benson Show just getting started in a new broadcast week. Glad to have you here. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As Americans, we generally don't pay much attention to. I certainly don't. I had to get a crash course from some of my friends over there. I guess the Russians were banned this year for obvious reasons. So was Belarus. There's a report that authorities said that the Russians tried to hack into and cause a disruption at Eurovision. They failed. They've been failing a lot recently. But the winning country for the best song, and there's a whole intricate way that this is voted upon, but the winners... This year came from Ukraine, with the U.K. coming in second place. Here's the basic details from Sky News in the U.K. Ukraine has won the Eurovision Song Contest after a huge show of support from the rest of the continent following Russia's invasion of the country. Performing their rap, their folk rap song, Stefania, Kalush Orchestra stormed up the leaderboard beating off strong competition from the United Kingdom and Italy. The group was out on the streets fighting off Russian aggressors just weeks before taking the stage in Turin instead of rehearsing for the biggest performance of their lives. Following their win, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky defiantly vowed that next year's contest will be held in Mariupol. The city is currently almost entirely in Russian hands. He wrote on Facebook, quote, Our courage impresses the world. Our music conquers Europe. Next year, Ukraine will host Eurovision. The U.K.'s Sam Ryder took second place. And obviously this is a huge shot in the arm morale-wise. We were just talking about morale with Jennifer Griffin in the last segment for Ukraine. This was the European community coming around and handing the win to this Ukrainian group, which is not to take away from the artistic performance, but I think some of this obviously was that sort of forceful show of solidarity. And evidently it is the tradition that the winning nation does host the next year's contest. So it would be Ukraine next year, and wouldn't that be something if the Ukrainians are able to, in fact, play host a year from now? So just an interesting cultural moment in the broader context or against the backdrop of geopolitics, something that gets a lot of attention over among our friends in Europe. Not so much here, but I wanted to sort of finish our discussion for the show on Ukraine and Russia with that little tidbit that also broke over the weekend. We will take a break. When we come back, our friend and colleague twice over, Katie Pavlich, will be here. She's next on The Guy Benson Show. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. <laughs> His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. All the ways to listen live, also to get that free podcast, which you can access on demand, no charge to you, seven days a week. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, we're getting some news out of California. We mentioned that there was a shooting not just at the supermarket in Buffalo over the weekend, but also a mass shooting at a church in California. And authorities in California are now saying it appears that the suspect who was subdued by parishioners and hogtied with electrical wire, was a Chinese immigrant who they believe was motivated by his hatred for Taiwanese people. This was a Taiwanese congregation. So this appears to be a pair of radically different hate-inspired shootings on opposite coasts of the country in the span of a day. Joining me now is Katie Pavlich. Editor at townhall.com, my colleague there, also a Fox News contributor. We are colleagues here as well. Katie, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks, Guy. Just getting your reaction, I mean, there's only so many words that can be said about how disgusting these types of events are. I try to make it a policy on this show not to use the name of the shooters or to promote them in any Mm -hmm. way, although their motives, of course, matter as well. Before we get into some of the the blame game and the politics of this, just your reaction to these two unrelated events that somehow feel strikingly and depressingly familiar. Obviously horrific, and it's a reminder that these things can happen anywhere at any time. And uh, that's an unfortunate reality. Um, But, you know, it also shows that there's not a monopoly on hate, uh, as the left has been trying to portray over the last couple of days as a result of this. Um, This can happen for a variety of reasons for different groups against each other. Um, And unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do about preventing that hate in all circumstances. But the the idea that there there are 10 families in, in Buffalo or 11 families Uh, And these families at church being destroyed uh, in an instant over a a hateful ideology or feelings for whatever reason that these evil people may justify uh, is really unfathomable. And you never want to um, see it happen. And yet it does. Yeah. I mean, uh, according to these authorities in California, the shooting out there was an example or an instance and a manifestation of ethnic hatred. That's what this appears to be. It was racial hatred in Buffalo, New York. This apparent shooter left behind this uh, raging, ranting manifesto that was sort of all over the place, talking about the replacement theory conspiracy and raging against black people and Hispanic people. He was anti-Semitic as well. He hated our network or hates our network, apparently, based on some of the the rantings in this thing that he wrote, which I did not read. I mean, I I don't really want to spend that much time 
digging into mm-hmm. what someone like this believes and, and how dark his heart got. I do think it is relevant. It's just not something I think we need to dwell on. But it is something that people are picking up on, Katie, to say, oh, well, here's a right-wing white racist shooter. So the president mm-hmm. I know is going to Buffalo, which I don't think is wrong. I don't think it's wrong for the president to go and try to comfort a community that's obviously been rocked by something horrible. There are people asking when you had a different profile of a mass casualty incident, for example, in Wisconsin, the president didn't go there. What exactly is the thought process behind some of these things? Why are some mass casualty events uh, highly covered in certain ways with the motives and the suspect highlighted? And in other cases, they tend to get a quick flurry of attention and, and then very little beyond that. It does feel like with the finger pointing and that kind of thing and just the overall reaction, sometimes politics ends up being a lens through which we see these things, which maybe is human nature. But I think it's also the type of thing that does breed some resentment and suspicion among a lot of people, because if someone goes and kills or wounds and hurts a lot of people, that should matter no matter what. I mean, that's at least Mm -hmm. the way I look at it. Yeah, absolutely. It should matter no matter what. And when you have a president going to one event versus the other, uh, when the demographics of the victims versus the perpetrator are switched, that doesn't help heal the situation. It it raises these questions of why the president may go to a certain place or to, in the aftermath of a horrible event and use it for a specific purpose. And uh, I, I take issue with the, the tweet that President Biden took out the end, or that he tweet, tweeted out. He said at the end that we must work together to address the hate that remains a, st- a stain on the soul of this nation. Um, these over generalizations of taking this incident, which is absolutely horrific in Buffalo, um, and putting it on, on the entire country. The entire country has condemned this. The entire country does not have an ideology of what you explained that the shooter does. Uh, the entire country also doesn't have an ideology of the of the Waukesha, Wisconsin um, parade massacre murderer who ran over a bunch of folks there and was a black supremacist. So, you know, when you choose one or the other and use it for political means, this is, of course, something they did at the briefing today, um, it doesn't heal as the president promised to do. It only exacerbates the problem and makes you see it through a lens of, who is doing what against who rather than people coming together, no matter what your background is, and saying it's all wrong, right? So I do think that they're causing a bigger issue by not being fair or treating these cases as incidents of hate. Instead, they're using it as a political narrative to advance some of the narratives that they had, whether it's you know DHS saying that white supremacy is the number one issue that they have to deal with in America. Um, But when you have the president ignoring the Brooklyn shooting, uh, ignoring the Waukesha parade um, massacre, ignoring the, you know, stop Asian hate when the, when the suspects turn out not to be part of that white supremacist narrative, uh, certainly doesn't excuse anything, but it does not help with combating hate, no matter where it rears its head, when you're picking and choosing which ones to go to and using it, Uh, to essentially assault the entire country with a smear of there being this hateful stain on the soul of the nation when that's not how Americans behave. They're condemning this behavior. Yeah, and no one's disputing the fact that violent white supremacist racism 
is you know a problem and no one's denying that it is a problem and it's a deep poison that affects a small group of people and i would like to keep it as small as possible and if anyone is going to be violent maybe find some way if possible and it's no it's never always possible it's difficult to stop them uh, there are other sources of hate as well that are literally on display right now it's it's not what aboutism to talk about another mass shooting in another state that was according to these authorities a different type of hate crime that happened you know in very close proximity at least time wise and Katie on the blame stuff the blame game that gets underway one thing that does bother me is and let me just say when we're talking about issues of race and sensitive issues like that I think it's good for people with a public platform to think about what they say and to say things carefully and to not needlessly stir the pot or, you know, stoke resentments. And I think that can be said across the board. That's how I try to comport myself. It it frustrates me deeply when there's a horrible incident like this and when there are certain elements of the atrocity that align with a narrative that people want to talk about, then – there are all these lessons to be learned from it, and they go after media figures or members of Congress. I see Elise Stefanik from New York. They're going after her mm-hmm. for this and sort of the, the blaming of political rhetoric when it comes to spasms of violence from demented, sick individuals and, and evil people. And yet, you know, when there's, for example, an avid consumer of left-wing media and Democratic talking points who tries to assassinate mm-hmm. a bunch of Republicans in, in public and double-checks to make sure that they're Republicans before he starts shooting at them, it's sort of like, and I said it too, like this is, we should not blame Bernie Sanders or MSNBC or whatever because this particular guy happens to be on quote-unquote their side and is spewing some of their stuff. I, I just feel like it's not always a, maybe I should even say it differently, it feels like it's rarely a two-way street when it comes to that sort of grace, and that does get kind of exhausting. Uh, It is exhausting, and it doesn't serve the purpose that I think you would agree with me, and that is that we don't want any hate crimes against any groups ever. Um, But the left tends to use situations like this to their advantage for their own political narrative, um, they're, you know, blaming Fox or whatever. And, you know, their goal is not necessarily, I won't say their goal is not to stop hate crimes, but they're using this as another way to extend their, their goals of trying to squash, you know, speech saying that, uh, quote, hate speech should be something that is, uh, punishable by, by law, as the New York governor said. Um, and then, of course, you get into questions about well, what exactly is hate speech, and they accuse you of being for some of the things that this horrible person wrote in his manifesto, which is obviously not true. Um, so, yeah, they do use these, these situations and opportunities uh, to go after their political opponents. I even saw today Steve Scalise being blamed for the situation. Uh, of course, he almost died as a result of political violence and is a direct victim of political violence. Uh, and yet they still accuse him of being responsible for it. Um, and so, you know, I don't know why people can't just step back and say we condemn hate crimes in all forms. We're going to grieve with the families and we're going to do what we can to make sure they have everything they need. But instead, they're using it as a political opportunity to advance 
their narrative, whether it's against certain conservative political commentators or um, for this, you know, anti-speech movement that they've been on uh, for a couple years now. So, you know, like you said, it's exhausting when one side is is being more gracious than the other. Um, but I think in these circumstances, certainly, I would rather be on the side of gracious and and not trying to use moments of tragedy for political gain. And at least just, you know, being respectful, it's about as provocative and enraging as it gets to have something like this that you had nothing to do with. And there's a bunch of people instantly, almost gleefully, eagerly rushing to blame you for it as soon as they possibly can. I think that there's right. it's a different kind of sickness in our society, but that's that's an element of it. You talked about the First Amendment implications here and some people criticizing free speech or saying hate speech shouldn't be protected or isn't protected by the Constitution, even though it is. Whether you like it or not, that is, you know, protecting unpopular speech is the whole point of the First Amendment. That's different than violent, uh, violent threats, obviously, and that's certainly a far cry from actual physical violence. None of that's protected. But, Katie, there's also the Second Amendment. And this is where mm-hmm. things also end up. People saying, how can we live in a country where this can happen over and over again with gun violence? I know that you're a huge Second Amendment supporter. Uh, you are very active in that community. I'm a Second Amendment supporter as well. But just what's your response when people who associate you with firearms, with guns, with gun culture, with Second Amendment, they say, you know, you and people who believe the way that we believe, uh, we're part of the problem. We make it easier for people like this to inflict as much damage as they can, and that's one of the flaws uh, in our country. What do you say back to that? I would say their ideology is what inflicts this kind of harm on innocent people because they're sitting ducks. This uh, shooter said he specifically picked uh, New York gun laws because he knows that people would be sitting ducks and unable to defend themselves. And I would refer to a statement that was made by one of the um, people outside of the grocery store who is not a white man who said that there needs to be more people who are armed and who know how to use firearms to fight back and so that criminals know that they're not going to be faced with nothing when they want to go in and massacre as many people as they possibly can. So for for decades, the left has tried to put people in vulnerable situations, knowing that criminals take advantage of that. And we've seen it over and over again. And I also think it proves that you can't legislate your way out of evil. I mean, New York has some of the strictest gun laws in the country. They have red flag laws. This guy was on law enforcement's radar. He had threatened to shoot up a school, yet for some reason he was able to continue living without supervision. Um, he went to a mental institution. So every single flag was missed, and yet they're going to blame Second Amendment supporters for the situation. Um, it's, it's a smear. It's a false argument. And uh, it's amazing how in the places where you have the most government control over firearms and the Second Amendment, like places like Chicago, for example, and New York, and yet they claim there needs to be more of it. It's, it's absurd. Yeah, I, I would say California, too, uh, you know, which yep. is where this other mass shooting was. Those were handguns. It was uh, an AR-15, we believe, in New York. And, Katie, it's just, you know, brutal. It's brutal to see this, watching interviews with some of the loved ones whose family members were just stolen and ripped away from them. It's just uh, totally gut-wrenching. And to have a dysfunctional, immediate political debate as well 
sort of compounds everything. But it, this is never a fun conversation to have. It's a conversation we're going to continue with Andy McCarthy a little bit later here on the program. And I'm grateful that you spent some time giving us your perspective here. Katie Pavlich, thank you. Yep, thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Let's take a quick break. We will be right back. Some political news. Big primary in Pennsylvania tomorrow. Quick preview on that when we come back. The Guy Benson Show. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. Delighted to have you along. So some primaries coming tomorrow. The one that is being most carefully watched is in Pennsylvania. The Senate primary there on the Republican side, we saw a very controversial, hard-fought one in Ohio a few weeks ago. Here's Pennsylvania, where polling is showing basically a three-way tie among the frontrunners on the Republican side of that Senate race. David McCormick, who's a businessman. Kathy Barnett, who ran for Congress, sort of a populist type. And then Dr. Oz, the TV doctor and celebrity who's got the endorsement and backing of former President Donald Trump. And I've seen a poll today that has Dr. Oz in first place. I saw a poll today that has McCormick barely in first place. And several of the polls all show Barnett with momentum. And so there's a plausible theory about how any one of them truly could win tomorrow. I don't have a dog in the fight. I will say that Dr. Oz I am skeptical of in terms of his conservative credentials. Some of his stuff during the pandemic and on Fauci and other things, he's reversed himself. I don't know how authentic he is on some of this stuff. And I know he's just very recently done some work on behalf of the Turkish government, and I think that regime is increasingly problematic. That has been an issue that has been raised in the campaign. He's got Trump's backing, so that helps him, plus name recognition. McCormick is just sort of kind of seems generic as a businessman. People say he's the most electable in a general, maybe. You never really know these days. Kathy Barnett is surging largely because McCormick and Oz have spent millions just blasting each other with millions of dollars for months. And she's sort of come up the right side and might be peaking at the right time, although there are some questions about her biography, her electability, stuff that she has said and done questions that she has been avoiding, including just yesterday, those things also make me a little bit suspicious. Has she been vetted properly? Democrats are going to nominate a Bernie guy on the other side. So big night ahead tomorrow in Pennsylvania. We'll be back. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our podcast of the show goes up usually just after 6 p.m. Eastern. It is free. It is on demand if you miss any of the show as it airs. We, of course, recommend listening live. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, either on Twitter and or Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Bayer and the crew. 
That's on the panel probably around 6.45, 6.50 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. We will see you there. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow closes the day up just by 37 points. So kind of a flat day on Wall Street. The Dow ending at 32,224. Joining us now is Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, the top Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. And, Congressman, good to have you back on the show. Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about the economy with you. I want to talk about inflation. It is the number one issue in the country, and it's really not close when it comes to what voters are thinking about. I know there's been a lot of attention, of course, in the last few days on these horrible shootings over the weekend. There's been a lot of attention about abortion in the Supreme Court. Those are all important issues. But when voters are asked what is at the very forefront of their minds, it is the ability to buy the things that they need to buy for themselves and their family. And the price of almost everything is ticking up and up and up. When we look collectively at the numbers and the data that have been trickling out over the last week or so on inflation, what are the big takeaways from your perspective about how long this phenomenon is going to be with us? Will it get worse before it gets better? How are you looking at the inflation problem right now? Yeah, so it is It is just what you said. This is the kitchen table issue. And as you live your day each day, you cannot escape how high everything is and what a toll it's taking on your family uh, budget. And so I know the president and the White House would like to distract with some other issues, but this is the one that worries people the most. So, so families had a double dose of bad news last week, both, both families and our Main Street businesses. So obviously inflation report was worse than expected uh, core inflation, which is with not counting food and fuel, for example, that doubled uh, its rate uh, of growth in just one month. Uh, inflation, if you look at the last three months, Guy, this is the number you don't see in the media, but you should. Inflation is averaging 9.9% the last three months. So those, including the president who says it's peaked and, and starting to ease, that that's just not what the numbers say. And then we saw it with small businesses, what they're paying for wholesale prices. So the fifth straight month of wholesale price hikes by double-digit numbers is another sign. Those price hikes are going to show up in the cost of things that consumers buy. So it was uh, it was a pretty tough week, tough couple weeks really on inflation. I've just not seen any solution from the president yet that gets to this. Congressman, I just want to briefly step in here and bring in a Fox News alert. One of the stories we have been covering, of course, is that shooting that I mentioned a moment ago in Buffalo, New York. Authorities there are now giving an update. Let's just dip in briefly and listen mm-hmm. live. Yep. Through So that uh, we have confirmed now that it appears that individual was here uh, back a couple of months ago in early March. So at this point, like I said, going to be a lengthy investigation. Things will change. Information will change as we uh, become aware of that. Uh, that's about all I have on the investigation at this point. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We'll now hear from uh, U.S. Attorney for the Western District, Trini Ross. 
The federal investigation is continuing. We're working again jointly with our state and local law enforcement partners regarding the threats that have been going around on the internet. We have a point of contact person in my office to deal specifically with those threats as we have several prosecutors dealing with the investigation of the crime that took place on Saturday. So Okay, so we're hearing some of these updates. We will monitor this. It sounded like when we were just jumping in to listen, there was perhaps more evidence of premeditation, not that really much more was necessary, tragically. Our guest, meanwhile, is Congressman Kevin Brady, the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. And we were talking about inflation. You were running through some of the numbers. Congressman, the price of gasoline, I know that no president has full control over any of this stuff. And I think it's a mistake to take too much credit when you're in that position, when things are going well, or to take too much blame or to blame someone exclusively when things aren't going well. But there are signals that can be sent to the market. There are policy changes that can definitely make a difference at the margins, then also in terms of you know directionally. And now with the national average price of gas expected to reach 475 a gallon in the next few weeks, I'm seeing that from foxbusiness.com, you juxtapose that headline and that pinch for so many families. People just need to get to work, bring their kids to school. Then you see the Biden administration, which sort of sometimes purports to be strong on energy exploration and energy production here at home. Then they do things like canceling oil and gas lease sales that were planned and ending certain programs without any replacement uh, intact or any announced replacement ready to go into effect. And that sort of, I think, underscores fundamentally the lie that they're trying to tell that, oh, you know, we're actually pretty good on this stuff. It's really the, the oil company's fault. It's the Trump administration's fault. And then you look at their own actions, their own policies, and you can't really hide from those. No, you really can't. And leadership matters, and those policies from the White House really matters. And I, and I think about President Trump after our tax cuts and, and reforms there. We saw paychecks growing twice as fast as, as inflation. And a lot of people of color and those with the lowest skills and blue-collar workers saw the biggest gains. So leadership really does matter. What I always you know, remind people is that up until gas prices went up, Democrats were cheering the attack on American-made energy from killing Keystone to, to not doing any leases onshore or offshore. Uh, the president's reversal, as you said, offshore and up in Alaska as well, they were, they were leading that. In fact, they were demanding to know in hearings in Washington from energy CEOs, will you commit to lower your production? Then prices went up. And now they're looking for that scapegoat. But the truth of the matter is, and we have a bill, bill that they've got on the floor today that would unleash the Federal Trade Commission, investigate price gouging in, in, in fuel and energy. But the truth of the matter is, they want to look yeah, for how, price gouging. It's gouges. so illiterate. Yeah, just look in the mirror. If Democrats want to find the culprit, look in the mirror because th- these are their policies, and it is hypocritical. You know, that actually reminds me. I feel like if you had the party, the Democratic Party, being honest, they would just outright say, as occasionally they do, and and that's the key thing. I remember President Obama, before he was president, was running for president. He did an interview with some editorial board at a newspaper. I believe it was the San Francisco Chronicle. And he was boasting to them that under his energy policies, electricity rates would, quote, necessarily skyrocket. And part of what 
some on the left believe is that we have to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels and that transition needs to be painful, but the pain is worth it for the environment. Now, you can agree with that. You can disagree with that. But in a lot of cases, that's actually what they believe. And when they can't say that into a microphone in front of the cameras because they know most voters will go screaming in the other direction saying, I want no part of that. I don't want some government individual or some you know government you know, power base telling me that my family needs to be in pain in order to achieve some future you know, political goal about the environment. That's not going to work well for them politically. So they're kind of left squeezed in this vice. On one side, they've got their, their policies and their intentions, which will cause pain, and they would argue, you know, in the short to medium term and long term, it'll be worth it. And then they don't want to actually say that aloud to voters, especially close to an election when people are feeling pain at the pump and inflation on, on uh, you know, in other areas relevant to this. And so they're stuck with what, Congressman, these types of wild goose chases and excuses about the greedy oil companies and price gouging and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, first, you have a great memory, because I remember that uh, that interview as well, and he was very clear. But, the, but your point is, is really sound, which is, this is the Green New Deal. You know, that whole whole approach is drive up energy prices as high as you can on everyone and then kill off the oil and gas industry as quickly as you can that that has, is their policy and that's what they've been pursuing and, and feeling pretty good about it until but, but even like here's the thing congressman up. even even if they think that in the longer term that is the righteous and good thing to do for the planet these are often the same people who claim to speak for and represent the indigent and the poor and the working people in America who are disproportionately hammered by inflation and high energy costs. This is deeply regressive. I just don't know how they square that circle. Uh, they don't. They don't. And, and that's what this blame game is all about. And I have to point out, too, so they do the whole thing on climate change. They use the same approach. But, you know, there are a whole lot of poor countries around the world who are looking at this Green New Deal and saying, well, hold it. We have no hope of working ourselves out of poverty if we don't have affordable energy, oftentimes from the U.S. And so what their damages to the poor and working poor here, but I would say it's, it's, it's as damaging around the world as well. I want to turn to a claim that is being advanced by the White House and congressional Democrats. They've been saying this now for a number of weeks, really even months, and it comes to the spending on COVID. Six trillion dollars has been spent. Roughly four trillion was on a bipartisan basis emergency spending during the pandemic 2020-2021. Then you had that extra two trillion at the beginning of the Biden administration that was extremely wasteful, totally partisan. And even some Democratic economists say uh, is one of the, the real factors and drivers of the inflationary environment that we're living in right now. They're willing to admit that as sort of like a needless uh, catalyst to all of this and something that was inflicted foolishly on the country exclusively in this case by the Democratic Party. But then you hear the Democrats in the White House and others saying we are out of money or we're about to run out of money. And we need Congress to authorize more money or we're going to have to ration vaccines. We're going to have to ration treatments. The testing regime won't be you know, up to snuff and all this stuff. And the point I keep making, Congressman, is I, I don't know how they can look the American people in the face saying we just spent six trillion of your dollars and or borrowed dollars 
on so-called COVID relief, $6 trillion, and we're out of the money for core central government functions about, like, the most important stuff. Where did this money go? It, it's actually – I keep coming back to the word insulting. You know, it is insulting, uh, and specifically because that $2 trillion that they – rammed through Congress without a single Republican vote was supposed to be, quote, the COVID stimulus. But as you know, less than a dime of every dollar went to COVID. And even that, they diverted uh, a lot of that money away. There is still a great part of that pot of money that is unspent that ought to be prioritized toward treatments and tests and therapies, but they just don't want to do it. So, look, the truth of the matter is, uh, revenue is coming into Washington at record levels from yes. from families, from small businesses, from big businesses. In fact, they've never had this much revenue in history coming in. So they've got all the money they need in the budget. They just don't have all the money they want. And that's where and, the higher taxes and the spending comes. Yeah, and the spending and the spending and the spending and the spending forever and ever and ever. That ultimately is the problem And it doesn't seem like a lot of people are that serious about trying to solve that problem in D.C., but you're one of them. Kevin Brady, Republican of Texas. Thank you, sir. Hi. We'll be right back after this. I'm Guy Benson, and like many of you, I spent much of the weekend following the horrible tragedy in Buffalo. A mass shooting by a racist targeting black people, killing 10. There was also a shooting at a church in California. We're still sorting through some of the details there. I will get into the law when it comes to mass shootings with Andy McCarthy coming up in our next hour. I did want to take this opportunity to honor the names of the victims, those whose lives were stolen by this sicko. Because unfortunately, the way that these things get covered typically, is the shooter, that name goes everywhere. The mugshot, the video images, in and out of court, those get spread widely. And I understand it is newsworthy when it comes to the suspects and their identity and their motives and all of that. That is newsworthy. I just feel like we as a society should give as little attention as possible to these people who in their own twisted way in many cases, want notoriety, want in their minds to go down in history somehow. And I'm not faulting anyone for reporting the name, that is basic journalism, or reporting the motive, which we seem to know here, which is racism. We know that this person was radicalized. We know that there were threats. This was an 18-year-old white man. But I'm going to do my best not to share his name, not use my platforms to give him any fame that perhaps he wanted out of this. It's especially frustrating to see the killer in some of these cases plastered all over newspapers and television, whereas the victims are almost afterthoughts, and I think it's the opposite of how it ought to be. So I spent some time yesterday reading about these victims who were overwhelmingly black by design, which is what makes this so upsetting and so disgusting. Some of them were just visiting relatives passing through town. One person was picking up a birthday cake for a child's party. Never made it, obviously. Just gut-wrenching. The victims ranged in age from their early 30s to mid-80s. They include Roberta Drury, 
32. Celestine Cheney, 65. Catherine Massey, 72. Margus Morrison, 52. Hayward Patterson, 67. Geraldine Talley, 62. Ruth Whitfield, 86. Pearl Young, 77. Aaron Salter, 55. And Andre McNeil, 53. The lives ripped away in an act of hatred and terror and violence. Just horrific and senseless and infuriating. What we do as a society about this kind of thing, I don't know. And I hate to say those words, especially on something so important. But I don't know. But we can honor the victims. And we cannot make their killer famous. That's one tiny, small starting point, at least here on the show. And maybe we will explore some of the tougher questions, the deeper questions upcoming in a little while in the next hour with Andy McCarthy, a longtime prosecutor. But for now, we will step aside and take a break. It is The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We return here to the Guy Benson Show. Very pleased and grateful to have you all alongside. I want to read to you at some length here from a Wall Street Journal op-ed over the weekend that I think is really informative and important. First, though, here is some background information. And this goes to a few points that we have made in recent weeks about the abortion debate and Roe versus Wade. And the very first day... I was out in L.A. The draft from Justice Alito was leaked in its entirety. If memory serves, that was a Monday evening after we were off the air. In my commentary here the following day on Tuesday, one of my key points was that even if Roe versus Wade does get supplanted and overruled, that does not mean that there is a blanket abortion ban in the United States. That is not what that would entail. That's not what that means. Although a lot of Americans believe that's what it means because they've been led to believe that through a program of sustained misinformation over the course of literally decades. Which is why you end up with these polling. I'd call them anomalies, but they're not really. We, we see fairly consistently this juxtaposition, which doesn't make sense on its face unless you understand some of the misperceptions feeding it where you have strong support for maintaining Roe versus Wade in the American public, a majority, and then also strong support for pretty substantial limitations and restrictions on abortion, quite a few of which would not be permitted under the existing Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood binding precedent, which may not be the binding precedent for much longer. But as of now, those cases would preclude some of the popular restrictions, and there's a big Overlap among people who say we don't want Roe versus Wade to go away, but also we want these restrictions in place. They are 
actually, in terms of law, mutually exclusive. Even though in the mind of a lot of people, they're not because of this misunderstanding that Scott Rasmussen, who's a pollster, I believe he sold off his polling firm, Rasmussen Polls, but he still does private polling himself. He wrote an op-ed in The Federalist in which he said, based on his surveys, his public opinion data, 77% of voters, I'm quoting, mistakenly think overturning Roe versus Wade would make abortion illegal in the United States. Just 22% actually understand the real implications of overturning Roe. Within the same poll, 65%, roughly two out of three voters, believe abortion laws should be established by voters and their elected representatives, which is actually what would happen if Roe is overturned. Only 18% in his poll, 18% of the public, say that the status quo where judges make these decisions should be preserved. So again, there's a lot of dissonance there where people will tell pollsters, Yes, we support Roe versus Wade, and then we'll give other responses on very closely related issues that seem to be exactly the opposite. And it goes to that key point. Roughly three out of four voters do not understand that Roe versus Wade being toppled does not lead to a ban on all abortions in the United States, which is a very unpopular opinion. I know that there are some of my fellow pro-lifers who would like to see basically all abortions banned. And I think that that is a fair position. I think people, many of them, come to it honestly and with deep conviction. It's also not popular. Just like the other extreme on this, which happens to have the backing of, at this point, almost the entire Democratic Party, right, in terms of the establishment, the party apparatus, much of the media, that is similarly unpopular, which is unlimited abortion on demand paid for by taxpayers. That has the support of a little less than one out of five people in this country. And it is disproportionately overrepresented in the media and democratic politics. Unfortunately, I think that is an unfortunate thing. Most other people find themselves somewhere in the middle. Abortion not completely banned. There are some exceptions that should be made, maybe up to a certain point of the pregnancy. Maybe that's six weeks with a heartbeat. Maybe that's 12 weeks at the end of the first trimester. Should someone who's been victimized by rape have to carry the pregnancy to term? These are difficult questions where people differ, but that's where people mostly are in their own minds based on the public polling. What they don't want is abortion everywhere, abortions for all, basically, that everyone pays for, taxpayers pay for it, all the way up to the moment of birth. People are horrified by that idea, and they also feel like Ending all abortion is not something that they want either. Hence, this misunderstanding and the muddled public opinion polling when it comes to Roe versus Wade. Because people do not understand, and they have, again, been misled on this front. They do not understand what the consequences are, what the outcome would be or will be if Roe goes, which will be something of a patchwork of laws around the country some of which are extremely, I would say, inhumanely permissive, some of which are going to be much more restrictive. And some of that will depend on the mores and the values of the electorates in those given states. Which brings me to the aforementioned Wall Street Journal piece that I wanted to raise for all of you. 
It is written by a law professor at Yale, which is a very left-wing place. Yale Law School seems to be becoming more and more of an asylum when you start to read what the students there do on a regular basis. But to his credit, Professor Akhil Amar, he's a self-described liberal Democrat who is pro-choice on the issue of abortion. But like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late justice, he's been very critical of the way that Roe versus Wade was decided back in 1973. You may have heard about that, that RBG was actually quite critical of Roe versus Wade. Not the outcome. She was a strong supporter of legalized abortion, but she felt that the way that the court did it in 1973, all men, by the way, I just throw that in based on some of the arguments that we've had recently and tend to have around this issue, the way that the court in a 7-2 to two ruling later scaled back 5-4 to four in 1992, but the way that the outcome was achieved, the establishment of a right to abortion, she thought was overreach and poorly contrived. She gave a lecture at NYU in the 90s saying that Roe tried to do too much too fast. I'm quoting from the New York Times. She said it essentially made every abortion restriction in the country at the time illegal in one fell swoop, which has left it open to and vulnerable to fierce and sustained attacks, which, of course, have been coming every day since. Quote, doctrinal, quote, doctrinal limbs too swiftly shaped, she called it. And she said that they may prove unstable. And she was right. She believed, for what it's worth, that it would have been, quote, better to approach it under the Equal Protection Clause, but that's not the direction that they went. So someone who sort of shares that worldview is this Yale professor, Akhil Amar, who outlined some of his points in the journal this weekend and defended what appears to be the conservative majority's opinion, or at least close to it, on this abortion case, Dobbs even though he is someone who is pro-choice on the actual underlying question, which is different than a constitutional question. I know that's hard for some people to grasp. Some people can't really fathom coming down one way on a legal issue or the way that a court might rule on something as opposed to the outcome that they would like to see happen as a matter of public policy. In fact, they are distinct in many cases and should be. So this professor begins by talking about Roe versus Wade, the controversy, points out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, among others, had problems with it. He said that the Roe decision, quote, lacks solid grounding in the Constitution itself, as Justice Alito demonstrates at length in his leaked Dobbs draft. In Roe, the court did not even quote the constitutional language it purported to interpret in handing down its ruling. He writes, constitutional history also cut hard against Roe, talking about the way that abortion jurisprudence or the lack thereof and state-level laws had shaped up prior to that watershed decision. He writes, the Roe court even admitted that the presence of a living fetus in abortion scenarios made the matter, when it comes to privacy, inherently different from all previous privacy cases. And he says, overall, I'm paraphrasing, that a lot of the legal reasoning in this case, meaning Roe versus Wade, a lot of the reasoning was shoddy. And they just sort of backfilled mumbo-jumbo into create and conjure a sweeping, wide-ranging, new quote-unquote right 
that uprooted all at once the abortion laws on the books in 49 states, and arguably, he says, all 50 states. Professor Amar from Yale Law School then goes on to start to address some of the slippery slope scare tactics that are being used by opponents of the apparent Dobbs decision and the current court majority, saying, oh, well, if they're going to get rid of Roe versus Wade, then what comes next? We've heard about interracial marriage. We've heard about LGBT rights. Here's how the professor deals with those questions. Quote, does Justice Alito's draft, as many are now claiming, inflict collateral damage on other areas of constitutional case law, such as the Warren Court's precedence on contraception and interracial marriage? He writes, it does not. In fact, the Dobbs draft reinforces these iconic opinions by explaining why they were right. And he goes into some weeds, and I encourage you to read the whole piece, about how Justice Alito really went out of his way in this opinion. Again, that has been authenticated by the chief justice. We don't know if it will be exactly precisely this as a finalized opinion, but that's what we have to go off of in this shocking leak. But on the matter of contraception, for example, there was a key case called Eisenstadt that Alito has explicitly endorsed. And his leaked draft opinion in Dobbs, quote, says much the same thing on the issue of contraception. By contrast, Justice Alito never said anything remotely similar about Roe. Because I think to a lot of judicial conservatives, Roe stands alone as wrongly decided for a whole litany of issues. And here's the point that I was making a moment ago, quoting again. For traditionalists, there is an essential difference between the contraception and abortion cases. Whereas the court in Griswold, which is the 1960s privacy case, sided with 49 states against the outlier of Connecticut, the court in Roe invalidated the laws of at least 49, perhaps all 50 states. The Dobbs draft takes pains to cite this stunning fact. Now, could this abortion precedent, a new one if it's coming, change the court's view and precedence on LGBT rights? That's the next issue that this law professor from Yale tackles. I want to get to that as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thanks for listening. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm walking us together through an op-ed, a really good one, from a Yale law professor who's a liberal, who is pro-choice, but who's saying that the argument put forward and the ruling apparently from this leaked Dobbs case from the Supreme Court is actually constitutionally sound and not radical. And part of what he's doing is going through and refuting some of the, frankly, hysteria from some folks on his side of the ideological spectrum about what this might portend when it comes to other cases on other subjects, for example, LGBT rights. He gets into that here. And I hear about this and I get that question all the time for obvious reasons. Professor Amar dug into that a bit in his op-ed as well. He says, quote, perhaps surprisingly, the draft's logic also buttresses certain important LGBT rights. And he walks through some of the case precedent, Lawrence v. Texas from 2003. He then gets into Obergefell, which is the same-sex marriage ruling from 2015, saying, could that potentially be on the chopping block? 
Alito, for example, was a dissenter in that very case. He says that's something to keep an eye on. But he says one of the things that Alito in the court looks at is how a right is established or applies within society writ large. And same-sex marriage is changing the face of American society. The professor says the status of same-sex marriage is obviously changing. Such unions are fast becoming a pillar of modern American life. Every year, same-sex marriage, unlike abortion, becomes more widespread and accepted, more deeply rooted and less controversial. And crucially, he writes, Obergefell is at heart a gender equality case, which is another – that's a legal distinction. So that's a legal distinction that matters. And the social distinction also matters because judges do look at those things when scrutinizing precedent. I know the court felt like they might settle the issue of abortion in America in the 70s. They did exactly the opposite. Let me read to you the conclusion of this law professor's piece because I think it matters a lot and it very much cuts against a lot of the noise that we've heard on social media, on cable news and elsewhere, the hysteria. The argument is that this right-wing court of radicals has gone way beyond the precedent, way beyond the Constitution to do something truly extreme in pursuit of an agenda that has no basis actually in the law. And this is just this conservative dream that they finally have enough votes to pursue. Well, here's what the professor says to that. Quote, I'm a Democrat who supports abortion rights but opposes Roe. The court's ruling in this case was simply not grounded either in what the Constitution says or in the longstanding, widely embraced mores and practices of the country. He's talking about Roe versus Wade. Perhaps I'm wrong in thinking that. Perhaps the Dobbs draft is wrong too. But here's the crucial line. There is nothing radical, illegitimate, or improperly political in what Justice Alito has written, end quote. Again, this is a liberal, progressive, Democrat voting, pro-choice Yale law professor who is making, I think, quite bravely and correctly the opposite case of his side's noise machine. And he's trying to once again draw out the distinction between policy outcomes and public policy which is the realm of elected representatives, and constitutional rights and jurisprudence. And with Roe going away, if that's what happens, it will not mean that now abortion becomes illegal in America to come full circle. It will mean that the people and their elected representatives, at a state level in particular, will have finally restored say in these thorny, difficult, emotionally charged questions on this issue. And my hat is off to this professor for having the intellectual honesty and fortitude to make that case that is probably going to make him, in some respects, persona non grata among many people at Yale Law School. But it's the type of thing that needs to be said, and intellectual honesty should be applauded and rewarded. And I think that the case that he built here was important enough to really bring it to you in some depth here on the program because there's this morass There's this morass, there's this miasma of misinformation on this front that has been building for quite a long time, fueled by dishonesty in a lot of cases. 
And this is the type of essay that helps pierce it and cut through it. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here between 3 and 6 p.m. every weekday. If you can't listen as we air, there's a podcast. It is free on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. That's the website, GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow. That's our handle on Twitter and on Instagram. Lots of goodies on social media as well. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific, very refreshing. Alcoholics, so 21 plus only, please, Always drink responsibly. They are really expanding. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where they are sold near you. The list of places is growing very rapidly. You can also order online, which is what we're doing for now until it's in our neck of the woods, which I'm hearing might be pretty soon. So stay tuned for more details on all of that. Joining us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney, for the Southern District of New York, a federal prosecutor, author of Ball of Collusion, among other books. He is at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, as always, it's good to have you here. Guy, great to be with you. I want to start with the horrific incident in Buffalo, New York, this racist mass shooting targeting black people, killing 10. And we're getting more details about what happened, how it happened, and, of course, the Internet jumped immediately into a blame game and we're seeing finger pointing partisanship some people saying this is a mental health issue some people saying it's a guns issue some combination thereof we're learning that this alleged shooter had made violent threats against his school in the not so distant past people are wondering how someone like that could get his hands on a firearm as someone who was a prosecutor when you see an incident like this What are the options really in a country like ours to try to stop this type of carnage? I know it's a huge question to ask. I know people say, how is it possible that in a civilized country this type of thing isn't necessarily commonplace, but to some extent feels like business as usual and you kind of move on? There are a lot of people who are just uh, disgusted by that and find it gut-wrenching, and yet there are no simple or clean solutions, Andy. And I wonder where you come at it, what the vantage point is, given your law enforcement background. Well, Guy, it's easy enough to say what ought to be done to the particular person who carries out an atrocity like this. I mean, there's a ton of state and federal laws on the books that deal with terrorism, that deal with the mass shootings uh, and the like. I think that, unfortunately, what happens uh, in the immediate aftermath of this is that, um, you know, labels like terrorism rather than, you know, the terrorism crimes that are in federal and state law are tools of enforcement. And instead, in the public debate, they kind of become labels for our, uh, you know, political agendas, which I don't think is helpful. 
But what obviously has to happen to the person who, uh, if the evidence is strong enough, and it certainly seems strong enough here, um, that person has to be prosecuted aggressively. Uh, and I, I imagine in this instance, uh, the federal government, which has been pretty aggressive in the Biden administration and using the civil rights laws, uh, will want to take the lead in the case. They will take the lead in the case because under New York, quirks of New York double jeopardy law, basically the feds could come in and take the case uh, if they choose to do that. And the feds could bring the death penalty to the table, which the, which the state can't. So what to do about the individual is all, I think, obvious enough. The harder questions are the ones that you ask, which are the, the policy questions that obviously, you know, prosecutors are not uh, equipped to deal with, or they're, they're at least not the people in our, uh, in our governmental structure who ought to be dealing with that. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the, the kind of things that we ought to be thinking about, which is basically, were there enough laws on the books if this turns out to be a mental health issue, to use the laws that, as it currently exists to prevent somebody like this from getting a firearm. And if there are such laws on the books, why wasn't that done? We know that there was an incident a year ago where uh, the individual who's been charged has uh, had gotten himself on the radar of the state officials, the state police in the Buffalo area, uh, because of a threat that they said was not uh, a racial threat, but a generalized threat uh, at the school system. Uh, and they evaluated this person for a day and a half and then released them. And it's not clear that anything further, including meaningful follow-up, was done. So one of the things I think you want to know is, was no meaningful follow-up done because the police dropped the ball? Was it not done because the mental health issue is too difficult for the for the police at this stage because there's been you know legal and political pressure not to address it for whatever reason so is it is it incompetence is it the laws aren't good enough uh or, or is it that we you know we have good enough laws on the books but we're not applying them effectively and so that's something you can't sort out in 48 hours let me ask you a couple follow-ups First, on the beginning half of your response from the law enforcement perspective, you're saying let's go after this person aggressively, very strong prosecution, throw everything you've got at him. I know the death penalty can be controversial, but like, let's say for the sake of this argument that that could maybe really send the signal how seriously the government takes this and how outrageous it is. And how it is totally intolerable to the point that the government is going to try to take the suspect's life away, given what he has apparently done here. If all of that happens, and I'm not necessarily opposed to any of that, I'm not against the death penalty. I'm sort of concerned about some of the ways that the death penalty is meted out in some cases. That That's where my opposition comes in. If there is someone who is open and shut, clearly guilty beyond any shadow of a doubt – and they commit an atrocity like this, that is the type of punishment that I'm open to. I think many Americans are. Does that actually achieve anything, right? Because I know that deterrence in law enforcement is real. Part of the reason that we're seeing such a crime problem in this country is that a lot of people who might think about committing crimes apparently aren't convinced that within the culture they're going to be held aggressively accountable. But I just wonder, is there a subsection of criminals 
like mass shooters who might not really care, right? Terrorists or mass shooters or whatever you want to call them, and sometimes those groups overlap, they can understand I'm going to never see the outside of a prison again, or I might be put to death by lethal injection. I don't care because whatever has poisoned my brain outweighs any rational consideration about what would happen to me next. I just wonder if really throwing the book at someone in these types of cases has an effect on people who might be contemplating something similar in the future. Well, I don't think, Guy, that we should have extravagant hopes for the criminal justice system. I I think, you know, you do what it's possible for you to do. But, you know, we treat murderers and serious criminals very severely. That doesn't stop murder from happening. It doesn't stop crime from happening. So obviously there's a limit to how much uh, interorum effect a prosecution can have. What I would simply point out on this score is that um, the effect that this that a prosecution has on other potential would-be offenders, the deterrent effect, is a subsidiary consideration of law enforcement. The, the number one consideration in prosecution and punishment is retributive. Yeah, uh, justice. It's, it's that the justice under the situation uh, demands retribution, and it also removes somebody who would likely offend again from the possibility of being able to offend again. You know, I, so I think that's fair. If those, if, if those are the only two things you accomplish, you've, you've at least accomplished something meaningful. But it's not – you're quite right to say it's not a magic bullet. It simply isn't. Follow-up, and this is on the latter portion of what you said in that initial answer. Let's say we have a situation, apparently, and we're still sorting through the details, where someone, a young man in this case, made violent threats in the recent past. And it was looked into. He was hospitalized. He was evaluated. Eventually, for some reason, they decided, okay – We're going to let him back out, and we're not going to pursue this further. Now, if that was them dropping the ball, as you point out, that becomes a new level of failure. Or it could just be, you know, humans being imperfect and saying we're not really convinced this person poses a threat. Maybe this individual then went down some rabbit hole and became a hardcore racist in addition to the clearly sort of disturbed, deranged thoughts that he was having given the previous threats. I think it is 100 percent rational and correct, actually, for Americans to say it is intolerable that someone who threatened to shoot up a school was then able to purchase a weapon subsequent to that. I think that is a completely fair critique. The other side of it, of course, Andy, is if someone does or says something, to what extent does the statements, the the thoughts, the expressed ideas of that person how much can those things be used to limit or curtail his or her civil liberties if there has been no action taken? And I don't know what the right balance is on that. And some people might say it doesn't matter. Once you've made violent threats, you're done. I get that. I also see that standard potentially being abused. And I come back to my original point, which is I don't know how to deal with this sadness and anger that I'm feeling in so many of us are feeling. And it just seems like whenever we have these conversations, far too often, they end in a very unsatisfying way. Well, Guy, you know, they they are inevitably going to end in a very unsatisfying way, though, because, you know, we have to begin from the premise that, as you just outlined it, there are a lot of competing concerns here. 
And there's no, because every situation factually is different and every person that you deal with uh, is different and your level of, um, of awareness of what they're dealing with is, uh, is imperfect, um, you're never going to get this completely right, which means even if you've designed as, as optimal a system as you could design, you're still going to have dissatisfactory, to, to say the very least, unsatisfactory uh, results, to put it uh, too euphemistically. So we have to be humble about what we can achieve. And the best we can do, I think, is to bring all these things that you, that you outline uh, to bear on the equation, recognize that, you know, people have uh, self-defense rights naturally. They have Second Amendment rights in our Constitution, but no right, none, no right is, uh, is absolute. Uh, every one of them can be, every right in the Constitution can be restricted as long as it's done with due process of law. And I think, you know, part of what we have to look at here is uh, do we have sufficient resources to deal with mental health issues? My, my sense is that we not only are not putting sufficient resources into it, we are not, um, we are not even using the laws that are on the books now that would enable us to incapacitate, at least from uh, firearms ownership, uh, people who have mental health problems. And yep. I'm not saying that anybody's Second Amendment rights ought to be removed without due process of law. I believe strongly in due process of law. But you shouldn't have to convict someone if you have sufficient evidence that there's a mental health issue and they've made threats. Yeah, uh, and, and that brings I me to, to one other quick point, Andy. The governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, was on TV yesterday talking about the First Amendment and how that's not unlimited and you can't shout fire in a crowded theater and the First Amendment doesn't protect hate speech which actually it does. I think she would have a much more solid argument if she was focusing on the violent threats of this individual as opposed to hate speech, quote unquote. But you have a lot of people who have apparently no understanding of or really any sense of or adherence to the First or Second Amendments. And that then I think causes some of us to say, well, hold on. We want to prevent this type of thing in the future. We hate this. We're also very worried when you have politicians spouting off with zero reverence for extremely solemn and important fundamental American rights that are in the Bill of Rights. So, I mean, on and on we go. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about that, Andy, and I know it can be frustrating. I know it can be heart-wrenching, but it's something that we need to talk about and grapple with as a society, setting aside some of our political differences, although, of course, those inform the debate. Let's take a quick break with Andy McCarthy. When we come back, I want to shift gears. The Sussman trial, the Durham investigation, the Russia matter, all of that. Andy has the very latest, some developments this week. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Andy McCarthy is here with me, and he's been writing a lot recently about another subject that has a lot of attention, especially on the political right, and that is the trial of Michael Sussman. Beginning today, this is all related to the John Durham investigation, the Russia matter. If you can just give us, Andy, a brief summation of where we are up to this point and the key things in terms of developments that you're looking at this week moving forward about where this is all headed. Well, guys, jury selection today should be a brief trial. 
what what we need to focus on is the narrow charge in the case is did Sussman lie to the FBI when he said that he wasn't representing anyone under circumstances where the evidence seems to be that he was representing the Clinton campaign and uh, another guy who had a connection uh, to the Clinton campaign. So that's the narrow charge. The context it happens in is this uh, big scheme that um, uh, that th this big scheme Durham has suggested that uh, the Clinton campaign basically concocted the Trump-Russia thing and then tried to get the FBI interested in, in it so it could tell the electorate that it was such a serious allegation the FBI was looking into it. The question is how much of that is the judge going to allow the prosecutor to prove in order to show the narrow uh, charge of false statements. So that's the big dynamic in the trial. And that will come down to what? The judge's prudential judgment? I know that there was a whole trove of documents and emails that are not going to be introduced at this trial. The judge has already decided that. What's the significance there? Yeah, I think he's made some bad rulings. The, the one last week about the uh, Fusion GPS, which was the, uh, the intelligence or information gathering outfit that the Clinton campaign was using to push things out to the media, those, those emails should not have been suppressed. He suppressed them. But overall, I think his ruling has been fairly reasonable, which is basically to tell Durham, the prosecutor, you know, look, this is the Sussman false statement trial. You're not going to try the Hillary Clinton fraud conspiracy. If you want to try that conspiracy, then charge it. But you haven't charged it at this point. And what he's basically saying is, I'm not going to preclude you from proving the big scheme, but we're going to keep it to the things that Sussman himself participated in. So you're not getting to put in, like, tweets that Hillary Clinton put out six weeks after uh, Sussman had the meeting with the FBI at which the alleged false statement occurred. I don't agree with all of his rulings, but if, if he sticks to that, I think that's pretty reasonable, actually. Yeah, that, that strikes me as reasonable as well. So we'll be watching it. I know you will be covering it very closely. You have pieces at FoxNews.com and the New York Post and National Review. I'll be following your work, and as the situation merits, we'll bring you back here. Andy McCarthy, our guest, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor here on The Guy Benson Show. Andy, thank you. Thanks so much, Guy. We will step aside. We will be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Guy Benson. It's The Guy Benson Show, the happy hour. Earlier on today's program, we caught up with our friend and colleague, Katie Pavlich of townhall.com and Fox News. Here's part of my conversation with Katie. Just getting your reaction, I mean, there's only so many words that can be said about how disgusting these types of events are. I try to make it a policy on this show not to use the name of the shooters or to promote them in any way, although their motives, of course, matter as well. Before we get into some of the, the blame game and the politics of this, just your reaction to these two unrelated events that somehow feel strikingly and depressingly familiar. Yeah, obviously horrific, and it's a reminder that these things can happen anywhere at any time. And uh, that's an unfortunate reality, um, but, you know, it also shows that there's not a monopoly on hate, uh, as the left has been trying to portray over the last couple of days as a result of this. Um, this can happen 
for a variety of reasons for di different groups against each other. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do about preventing that hate in all circumstances. But the, the idea that there, there are 10 families in, in Buffalo or 11 families uh, and these families at church being destroyed uh, in an instant over a, a hateful ideology or feelings for whatever reason that these evil people may justify uh, is really unfathomable and you never want to um, see it happen. And yet it does. Yeah. I mean, uh, according to these authorities in California, the shooting out there was an example or an instance and a manifestation of ethnic hatred. That's what this appears to be. It was racial hatred in Buffalo, New York. This apparent shooter left behind this uh, raging, ranting manifesto that was sort of all over the place talking about the replacement theory conspiracy and raging against black people and Hispanic people. He was anti-Semitic as well. He hated our network or hates our network, apparently, based on some of the, the rantings in this thing that he wrote, which I did not read. I mean, I, I don't really want to spend that much time digging into mm -hmm. what someone like this believes and, and how dark his heart got. I do think it is relevant. It's just not something I think we need to dwell on. But it is something that people are picking up on, Katie, to say, oh, well, here's a right wing white racist shooter. So the president mm -hmm. I know is going to Buffalo, which I don't think is wrong. I don't think it's wrong for the president to go and try to comfort a community that's obviously been rocked by something horrible. There are people asking when you had a different profile of a mass casualty incident, for example, in Wisconsin, the president didn't go there. What exactly is the thought process behind some of these things? Why are some mass casualty events uh, highly covered in certain ways with the motives and the suspect highlighted and in other cases they tend to get a quick flurry of attention and, and then very little beyond that it does feel like with the finger pointing and that kind of thing and just the overall reaction sometimes politics ends up being a lens through which we see these things which maybe is human nature but i think it's also the type of thing that does breed some resentment and suspicion among a lot of people because if someone come goes and kills or wounds and hurts a lot of people that should matter no matter what. I mean, that that's at least mm -hmm. the way I look at it. Yeah, absolutely. It should matter no matter what. And when you have a president going to one event versus the other, uh, when the demographics of the victims versus the perpetrator are switched, that doesn't help heal the situation. It, it raises these questions of why the president may go to a certain place or to, in the aftermath of a horrible event and use it for a specific purpose. And uh, I, I take issue with the, the tweet that President Biden took out the end, or that he tweet, tweeted out. He said at the end that we must work together to address the hate that remains a, st a stain on the soul of this nation. Um, these overgeneralizations of taking this incident, which is absolutely horrific in Buffalo, um, and putting it on, on the entire country, the entire country has condemned this. The entire country does not have an ideology of what you explained that the shooter does. Uh, the entire country also doesn't have an ideology of the, of the Waukesha, Wisconsin um, parade massacre murderer who ran over a bunch of folks there and was a black supremacist. So 
you know, when you choose one or the other and use it for political means, this is, of course, something they did at the briefing today, um, it doesn't heal as the president promised to do. It only exacerbates the problem and makes you see it through a lens of who is doing what against who rather than people coming together, no matter what your background is, and saying it's all wrong, right? So I do think that they're causing a bigger issue by not being fair or treating these cases as incidents of hate. Instead, they're using it as a political narrative to advance some of the narratives that they had, whether it's you know DHS saying that white supremacy is the number one issue that they have to deal with in America. Um, but when you have the president ignoring the Brooklyn shooting, uh, ignoring the Waukesha parade um, massacre, ignoring the, you know, stop Asian hate when the, when the suspects turn out not to be part of that white supremacist narrative, uh, it certainly doesn't excuse anything, but it does not help with combating hate, no matter where it rears its head, when you're picking and choosing which ones to go to and using it uh, to essentially assault the entire country with a smear of there being this hateful stain on the soul of the nation when that's not how Americans behave. They're condemning this behavior. Yeah, and no one's disputing the fact that violent white supremacist racism is you know, a problem. No one's denying that. It is a problem, and it's a deep poison that affects a small group of people, and I would like to keep it as small as possible. And if anyone is going to be violent, maybe find some way, if possible, and it's no, it's never always possible, it's difficult to stop them. Uh, there are other sources of hate as well that are literally on display right now. It's, it's not whataboutism to talk about another mass shooting in another state that was, according to these authorities, a different type of hate crime that happened you know, in very close proximity, at least time-wise. And, Katie, on the blame stuff, the blame game that gets underway, one thing that does bother me is, and let me just say, when we're talking about issues of race and sensitive issues like that, I think it's good for people with a public platform to think about what they say and to say things carefully and to not needlessly stir the pot or, you know, stoke resentments. And I think that can be said across the board. That's how I try to comport myself. It, it frustrates me deeply when there's a horrible incident like this and when there are certain elements of the atrocity that align with a narrative that people want to talk about, then there are all these lessons to be learned from it. And they go after media figures or members of Congress. I see Elise Stefanik from New York. They're going after her mm -hmm. for this and sort of the, the blaming of political rhetoric when it comes to spasms of violence from demented, sick individuals and, and evil people. And yet, you know, when there's, for example, an avid consumer of left-wing media and Democratic talking points who tries to assassinate mm -hmm. a bunch of Republicans in, in public and double-checks to make sure that they're Republicans before he starts shooting at them, it's sort of like, and I said it too, like this is, we should not blame Bernie Sanders or MSNBC or whatever, because this particular guy happens to be on, quote unquote, their side and is spewing some of their stuff. I, I just feel like it's not always a maybe I should even say it differently. It feels like it's rarely a two way street when it comes to that sort of grace. And that does right. get right. kind of exhausting. Uh, it is exhausting and it doesn't serve 
the purpose that I think you would agree with me, and that is that we don't want any hate crimes against any groups ever. Um, but the left t- tends to use situations like this to their advantage for their own political narrative. Um, they're, you know, blaming Fox or whatever, and you know, their goal is not necessarily. I won't say their goal is not to stop hate crimes, but they're using this as another way to extend their their goals of trying to squash, you know, speech, saying that uh, quote hate speech should be something that is uh, punishable by by law, as the New York governor said. Um, and then, of course, you get into questions about well, what exactly is hate speech, and they accuse you of being for some of the things that this horrible person wrote in his manifesto, which is obviously not true. Um, so, yeah, they do use these, these situations and opportunities uh, to go after their political opponents. I even saw today Steve Scalise being blamed for the situation. Uh, of course, he almost died as a result of political violence and is a direct victim of political violence, uh, and yet they still accuse him of being responsible for it. Um, and so, you know, I don't know why people can't just step back and say, we condemn hate crimes in all forms. We're going to grieve with the families, and we're going to do what we can to make sure they have everything they need. But instead, they're using it as a political opportunity to advance their narrative, whether it's against certain conservative political commentators or um, for this you know, anti-speech movement that they've been on uh, for a couple of years now. My full interview with Katie Pavlich and the entirety of today's show available online for free. We also have the podcast on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine with Mother's Day 2.0 over the weekend. How did it go? We'll talk about it next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday here on the Guy Benson Show. Please stay tuned. I'm on special report tonight on the panel along with Dr. Ben Carson, Mara Eliason, and of course Brett Bayer on set here at the DC Bureau. See you around 6:45, 6:50 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here, podcast free on demand every single day. And producer Christine, we talked about this last week. You had a bit of a blow up on Mother's Day with your mother, which resulted in some words being exchanged and I guess threats about a nursing home and all sorts of stuff. So you guys decided that you were going to try again this weekend and have a happier Mother's Day the following weekend. So you had a week to cool off. How did Mother's Day 2.0 go? Uh, Much, much better than the original Mother's Day. Also, and I'm sure a lot of people out there could relate, uh, this time around my sister and my niece were there, and my sister, um, her and I are good. Like, if my mom's bothering her, I can interfere. You know, like, I can run interference and vice versa. So she... She's like a buffer. Yes. And my sister even called me Friday night. She's like, why don't you pour a glass of wine and we can chat for a little bit. And she explained, you know, I have to have more patience. And, you know, basically, like, we're not going to fight tomorrow. It's, you know, Mother's Day. Like, we are going to be nice to our mother. So, um, yeah, it worked out. It worked out. Does that mean that the grand (laughs) scheme is back in place? Meaning you sold your house to make a profit, (laughs) moving into an apartment for a period of time temporarily 
to then buy the Forever Dream House together with your mother, and you'd all live under one roof together at some point down the line here. Is that back in the cards or not so much still? So, oh, gosh, I hope she's not listening. And probably Bob shouldn't listen right now either. Um, I'm permanently taking that off the table. Right, but that was a key, that was a central element of this whole scheme, which was your scheme. You know what, guys? Sometimes you got to take a different direction, a road less traveled, as I like to call it. Mm. And uh, we're in some uncharted territories here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, We are just going to navigate our own path, and that path is not going to be with Judgy Joyce in my home. We're going to figure something out. Of course, I'm going to take care of her uh, along with my sister. You know what? Maybe my sister could take her. I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. But we were driving home from Mother's Day 2.0, and Megan said something about her living with us. And I said, no, Megan, I don't think that's going to happen anymore. Oh, Your daughter is still apparently under the impression that this is happening well, and you had to disabuse her of that notion, even though it's the notion that you, in fact, invented and came up with as the justification for the entire house-selling endeavor in the first place? I mean, it was 99.9% of my justification of selling the home. I remember. So That's why that, I'm bringing it up. Yeah, that's not happening anymore. Um, I'll have to figure out another plan. I'm just kind of just going with the flow. I'm... I don't know, guys. You know this about me. I'm a pretty easygoing, chill girl. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hold get on. The fact easygoing, on chill, one. and girl. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you uh, <laughs> 27 Pinocchios on fire for that one. So, uh, nope, nope, no plan. Don't know what we're going to do now. Um, you know, life is a highway. One more thing before that. we go. You got a call earlier today. We were doing our planning oh. meeting. You got a phone call from one of our bosses, and you had an exposure to COVID, so you had to stay away from the office for a few days, including today, and then you can test negative and come back. But based on, I guess, corporate policy, you have to wear a mask for a couple of days, even after testing negative. And what was the suggestion that was floated to you? Well, let me just tell you, you never want to look down and see the number of your big, big boss, like your boss's boss calling you directly. It can never be good. So I, like a professional I am, answered the phone and said, hi, boss, what did I do? (laughs) And he explained Mm -hmm. to me the reason he was calling. It was not something I did. And he said, "Uh, today you can test out. And then tomorrow you will be here for the next five days, you know, with mask on. And I said, you know, okay. And he goes, but for you. He goes, I, well, I think that maybe you should just make the masking permanent in the building. And I said, oh, you know, because of the numbers going up. And he goes, no, 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 I mean you specifically, just you. <laughs> maybe just... that will lower the tone a little bit because I can hear you. He, he claims he can – now you know where I sit and where he sits. Yeah, it's like 200 yards away. He claims he can hear me every day. He knows exactly when I get in. He knows who I'm talking to, when I'm getting a coffee. He claims he can hear me. He's like, I can hear your voice everywhere. Maybe 150 yards, like a football field and a half. That sounds about (laughs) right to me. Uh, But I wouldn't be surprised if he could hear you. So he wants the mask really more as a muzzle is what it sounds like. And that is the boss's boss suggesting that. So, I mean, I found that (laughs) hilarious. And that's just a sort of sense of how Cookie has ingratiated herself with the entire team at Fox, Uh where she's worked now for how long? 17 years. 
Yeah. I mean, look, we all know you very well. Hence, hence these types of suggestions. We hope everyone's fine. You know, there is a little blip and spikes here in COVID, and I know you were exposed. Why it was as well. So far, so good. And we wish anyone who's not feeling well uh, a quick and speedy recovery. But, Christine, do you have to wear the mask during the home stretch? Like when we are recording home stretches in these next few days when you're back in the office, does it have to come through a mask? I assume I can take it off for on-air purposes. I will have to get right, We can uh, double-check that. Yeah, let's just uh, yeah. let's pursue that and make sure we get the box checked on that because we don't want Christine getting into any trouble and having to wear the mask forever unless you think that might be a good thing, as apparently our boss's boss does. And I'm not totally opposed, even as someone who's skeptical of masking. This is not really a scientific diagnosis. This is more practical, which I think is something that I am at least willing to entertain. I'll think on it. I'll sleep on it. We're done here for the day on The Guy Benson Show. Back here, same time, same place tomorrow. Heading over to Special Report shortly. I'll be on late in the 6 p.m. hour on Fox News Channel for the panel. See you there. Talk to you tomorrow. Have a great night. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.